back to TTT, the Talking Transport Transformation Podcast, brought to you by TUMI, the Transformative Urban Mobility Initiative. It is important that our transport sector is transformed as a climate protection measure, but it's easy to forget that this doesn't just affect the infrastructure, like the buses, the subways, the two- and three-wheelers. Workers are experiencing the changes too. In today's podcast episode, we focus on workers in the transport sector. They are particularly affected. On the one hand, they are exposed to the effects of climate change and have to work in extreme weather conditions. On the other hand, technological changes such as electrification of the sector can mean that they are no longer able to do their jobs. A just transition in the transport sector is necessary to achieve net zero mobility systems that provide equitable access to opportunities and create green and fair job options. The International Transport Workers Federation is committed to a green and just transformation of our transport sector. The ITF is aiming to improve working conditions. To do this, they unite nearly 700 affiliate trade unions from 150 countries and give nearly 20 million working men and women across the world a voice. My colleague Nora talks in today's podcast episode to Bruno D'Abruzzi. He works at the International Transport Workers Federation as a Just Transition Coordinator. Hello, everybody, and welcome, Bruno, today. I'm very pleased that we are talking today about Just Transition. Bruno, you are part of the ITF, the International Transport Workers Federation, and you stand up for transport workers and a just transition. Perhaps you can introduce yourself briefly and then to start directly into the topic, explain how does ITF define a green and just transition? Sure. Hi, Nora. Thank you so much for providing this space for the ITF. My name is Bruno Lebrusin. I am the Just Transition Coordinator at the International Transport Workers Federation. We represent over 20 million workers in all modes of transportation, including aviation, maritime, public transport, um, dock workers, also workers in the tourism industry. So it's a very broad spectrum. And for about two years now, we've been working on the issue of Just Transition. We started with urban transport, but we're slowly moving into the other sectors that we also represent workers on. Uh, so very excited about the work that we're doing and also about the kind of connections that it allows us to make with organizations uh, like, like Tumi. I would say maybe to answer your, your first question on what's a green and just transition for the ITF. So definitely on the green side, for us, it's very important to decarbonize transport all modes of transport to lower carbon emissions from transport. We know that just over 20% of world emissions come from the transport sector. It is one of the key sectors that we need to decarbonize if we're actually going to confront the climate crisis and keep uh, the, the, the temperature level at below 1.5 degrees increases. So for us, definitely when we talk about green, we are talking about decarbonizing transport Uh, making it also more efficient, uh, just saving energy as well as trying to emit less. I think that's an overall uh, perspective. But then comes the other part, which is about the just transition. For us, the process of decarbonization cannot be taken on its own. 
when we talk about a just transition, we're trying to center on what are the lived experiences and realities of the workers involved in the process of decarbonizing the transport system. So that's why green and just, it, those are key connections for us. We don't uh, want to have to put the jobs of those workers in contrast with the environmental and climate needs that we have as a society. We want them to go together. And that's why we highlight always in a process of decarbonization, what are the needs that workers have, but also what are the needs that the communities that benefit from that specific mode of transport have. Let me give you one example that I think can help in understanding what we mean by this. In public transport, there is now a huge process of electrification of public transport. So for us, this is a very welcome process. We support electrification of buses, for example. Now, the issue as well is what happens with the workers that not just the ones that drive those buses, whose jobs usually should be maintained into the electric buses, but what happens with the mechanics, what happens with the people that clean the buses, uh, generally the ones who manufacture those buses as well. Those are the questions that come into place when we talk about a just transition. And then the, the section on the community is who benefits first from these electric buses? Are we actually benefiting the communities that need the most because they live in the most polluted context where air pollution is one of the major concerns? Or are electric buses being introduced only in certain kind of neighborhoods, usually upper class uh, neighborhoods? So this, these are the kind of discussions that we want to bring in when we talk about a green and just transition. Yeah, thank you very much for your views. I think that's like super important to point out that the transformation of the sector is not always just like a win-win narrative as it's often um as it often sounds and it is very important to point out that the transformation of the transport sector must take into account both the reduction of emission and combat existing inequalities. So now I would be interested in how does a just transition to transportation or transportation workers relate? Well, there is a direct relation. Just to maybe bring you back a little bit on where just transition comes from. It comes from the workers' movement in the U.S. in the 1980s, late 1970s and 1980s. And it was a worker leader called Tony Masoki that started discussing this idea of a just transition. And he had this phrase that I think is very fundamental for us to understand as well why it connects to workers. And he said he was talking about the workers in chemical factories and the communities around those chemical factories were getting all of the residue from those factories. Their rivers were getting polluted. Their water sources were getting polluted. And he said, well, the workers inside those factories are also not safe because they're being exposed to all these chemicals. And his phrase was, if workers aren't safe, communities aren't safe. And I think that we can translate that into the just transition use that we, we make with transport workers. If we want to decarbonize our society, our cities, our public transport, it is key that the workers that are going to lead that decarbonization process are also incorporated and are also a key element in that process. And we say this not just because obviously these are our members and we want to make sure that they are able to keep their jobs, that they're able to maintain a livelihood, even to improve their livelihoods. One thing with electric buses that I was mentioning before is that a lot of workers want them because the kind of health consequences that they have today, especially around respiratory illnesses, 
it's something that workers are very aware of, so they want to be part of this transition. But the issue is that the process in which this happens needs to value the workers not just because of the jobs that they have, but also because of the experiences that they have. When we talk about a just transition, uh, we want to include transportation workers as well because we truly believe that this is going to benefit the entire community and the entire society. Workers know best which routes are working well, where are the needs of passengers, what are the needs of the system as a whole, because they live it day by day. They work on it so they know the ups and downs of the transportation system, and they have a very clear idea of what it could mean to decarbonize that system. So we want to have make sure that those experiences that they have are a key component of, of this transition to a decarbonized uh, transport. So there is a, for us, there is a direct relationship between when we have a, a discussion on just transition and the central role that workers and transportation workers in particular play in that transition. Unfortunately, not always. I think just transition has become a bit of a catchphrase and it's often used in so many different ways that it's difficult uh, for us to understand exactly what different groups and organizations mean. But when you're talking about the union movement, and in particular with the ITF, it is centered on the workers as a key component of that transition. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So thanks for those insights and as well like the historical view. And now that we have talked about how transportation workers are affected by changes in the sector, but also by climate change, I would be interested in the, I don't know, urban transport workers' response. Like, what does it take? So can you highlight the framework for a worker-led, democratic, gender-equal and clean transition for transport in our cities? For sure. Yes, I know it's a long title. Maybe we should shorten the title to make it a little more accessible and translatable as well. But here I'll, I'll explain a little bit where this comes from. We we came together with workers in the urban transport system around the global south, especially over a year and a half. We've been working with very different groups of workers. So sometimes it's public transport workers, sometimes it's app-based delivery workers, but basically every transportation worker that is involved within the context of the city. And we started a process of a participatory action-based platform development. We thought workers know best of what are the changes that are needed in the context of cities. So first we started asking, so how do you see the impacts of climate change? And very interesting things came out. Of course, the awareness of what's happening through extreme weather events is probably the most, the strongest link that workers feel. And then as a process of that, we started discussing, so what are the things that we need in this context? What would transport workers need? And that's when we came to this 10-point framework with the very long title that you just uh, mentioned. <laughs> And what I like about this framework is that so many times when you hear about just transition proposals from unions, especially in the fossil fuel sector where it has been perhaps the largest, especially coal workers, it's often very focused on workplace-specific issues. And that's fine. It's important, obviously, to include those elements. But what I like about the one that came up from these seven different cities and like over 200 workers that participated in creating this 10-point framework is that we have very specific workplace issues, but we also have broader societal changes that workers would like to see that are part of a just transition. And that's, I think, it's also very encouraging. 
So just to name a few, one important element, especially in the global south, where we know the vast majority of transport workers are in the informal labor market. What does informal mean? Just a quick uh, recap. Basically, you have no access to social security, no formal health care, no access to pensions. You basically, what in, in some places is called under the table, it's all informally done, the transactions. So for workers, having a process, a road to formalization is very important as a way to decarbonize transport because that also allows the system to be able to know how many workers we have, where do they operate, what are the routes. The process of decarbonization should be directly linked to the process of formalization. Additional pay during extreme weather events, it's another element. And this was brought up especially by delivery workers, which was very interesting. They said, we have to continue delivering food regardless of the weather outside. And the apps that employ us, even though they don't want to see them as employ them as employees, those apps usually have a surcharge for high demand, but they don't have a, that surcharge often doesn't go to workers. And there is no element today that incorporates extreme weather events in which workers have to continue working. So that was one of the demands that was very, very interesting and was very new. It's something that we hadn't thought about before. Employment stability, so having a jobs guaranteed so that, for example, as I was saying before, when you move from an electric, from a combustion engine bus to an electric bus, we can guarantee that everybody will keep their jobs. Maybe there will have to be some reallocations of workers. Uh, perhaps the biggest case where this is a problem is actually with ticket uh, vending, where a lot of public transport systems have moved to automate their ticket vending machines, uh, which actually overall may could make the system more sustainable because it allows you to keep better track of of movements in the system. But at the same time, it puts a lot of workers or a lot of their jobs uh, at risk. And a lot of, especially women workers, have lost their jobs as a consequence of that automation. So having a jobs guarantee that we can make sure where we can relocate those workers in some other role within the public transport system, also very important for, for, for workers around, around the world. Early pension for retiring workers uh, when we're making these transitions, we actually think that we actually have different realities for workers depending on their age. If you are over 50, at the end of your career, it may be more difficult to retrain yourself into a new position, into a new role, or even to handle new technology. So having early retirement schemes was an important element as well. That, so to speak, is very worker-specific, but I think the other section of, of demands that came about are broader. So democratic urban transport and democratic planning of urban transport. So one thing that we've seen with decarbonization plans in cities around the world is that there's actually very little involvement from workers and communities until the almost like the final stage, when the main things are already decided, when the plans are already there, and it's kind of like a checkbox that people just you know tick. So having that whole process democratized from the get-go, get workers and communities involved, was very important for, for these workers. Public sector involvement. In many cases, workers are calling for the municipalization of public transport, putting public transport in public hands. And this is because we truly believe that 
in order to decarbonize, in order to confront the climate crisis, it cannot depend on companies making profit because the priority should be on decarbonizing transport. And we have a huge problem when the transport system depends on a few big companies trying trying to make a profit. This leads to higher fares. It leads to uh, less accessible services. So for us, it's very important to have a central role for the public sector. And then other things that are more perhaps common, like a model shift. Uh, so it's not just about electrifying transport, but also about shifting to communal modes of transport. We won't be able to resolve this issue of the climate crisis just by electrifying private cars. We need to get people out of cars and into public transport. And then lastly, obviously something that is very important in a very male-dominated sector as transport is how are we going to involve more and more women in the transport system, so a gender-equal just transition because we often see a lot of plans to hire more women workers, but maybe many times we don't have the actual well-organized plan for how those women workers are going to be trained, how they're going to be able to participate in the transport system that has historically excluded them. So having women take a central part is also very important. So that's just to give you a very brief summary of where this comes from. Thank you, Bruno, for those detailed insights in the framework, how ITF is working. And I would wondering if you could go a bit deeper into the work, how ITF supports or works with those workers. And yeah, just to get more insights on the work. Thank you. Sure. Well, we do a lot of the work that we do actually is based on the demands from affiliates. So we are a democratic organization and Therefore, it's affiliates, uh, member organizations that really direct the work that we do. And what we try to basically do from ITF at the international level is two things. So one is build common understandings between different affiliates who may be in the same sectors, but they may be many times in very different locations. And they might not have heard from each other. They might not know that there's something very interesting happening, let's say, in the Philippines that the minibus drivers in Bogota, in Colombia, should know about. So we, we make those connections, and that's very important for us in our work to integrate our members as well from unions around the world. This, the, the second part is try to see how we can pressure and work with sometimes international organizations that will be fundamental in deciding what is going to happen to those transport workers on the ground in those countries where we have members. So, for example, we work a lot with the International Labor Organization that sets the standards for workers and employers around the world with the ILO conventions. But we also get involved in the Conference of the Parts negotiations to make sure, for example, that when we're discussing decarbonization, transport, that there is a space for workers' voices that when countries make commitments through their national, nationally determined contributions, that they actually include workers and that they have con concrete plans to work with specific groups of workers. So that's also part of the, of the work we do. Let me add one third thing, which is I think it's also about opening spaces of conversations and discussions on ideas that 
we may not have thought about before. So I think sometimes the international organizations have a little bit more of that space to engage with academics, to engage with other think tanks, with groups and organizations that maybe folks on the ground don't have the time or the capacity to do. And our role, I think, is to complement that and bring in those new perspectives that can help us in, in the fight for, yeah, not just for confronting the climate crisis, but for improving our societies. And many times this takes a form of engaging, for example, with groups like the C40 cities, which is a group of mayors from around the world that have combined their efforts and where climate change is a big element of what they're trying to do. So many times working with C40 helps us reach those mayors in cities where we have members and where the, a dialogue needs to be established. Um, so I think on those three levels is that we mostly operate from, from where we're at. Mm -hmm. Super. Thank you very much for these insights into the work of the ITF. And I would ask like as a final question, why you think participatory approaches are needed? Because the other format, <laughs> the non-participatory, has basically failed so far. I think we had many, many years of top-down directives and processes that did not incorporate workers, that did not incorporate communities. And what we're seeing, I think, many times, even when there is a decarbonization process that is actually happening, we may not see the positive benefits for the workers in the system or the communities around them. So participation is key, but participation has to be meaningful. It has to be at the different stages of the process. As I mentioned earlier, you can't just have participation be done at the end as a, you know, check in the box. Okay, I consulted communities and unions. It's important in the implementation as well. And I think more and more, not just governments, but employers are also aware of this um, because for successful transitions to happen, we need to have as many people and actors in the system on board as possible. So let me give you an example of something that for us was really important, a big win that we had recently in the in Chile, in Santiago de Chile, in the subway network. We managed to get the first just transition clause in the collective bargaining agreement negotiated in the context of Latin America. And, and basically what that clause says is that workers will be involved from the moment that a new policy is being even thought of to be introduced. And this policy can be many different things, but there is a time frame that workers need to be involved and they will have the capacity to veto a certain change if the majority of the workers are not uh, in agreement with that with that specific change. So this This, this means that there will be minimum full participation, but there will also be time, sufficient time to adapt and to be able to take that policy to a place where eventually those workers will actually feel much more comfortable with, will be able to know the consequences, and they'll also will be able to repair the damages that maybe those policies will have on certain sectors of the workplace. So for us, that's a good example of what participation means. But we need to basically get into the practice of just talking to each other and also being willing to confront that we may not always agree. I think one one part of why sometimes governments, employers don't want to incorporate unions <laughs> early on 
is because there are moments of confrontation. There is, you know, strikes are an important tool the unions have, and we're going to use them as often as we can. But it is part of the process of participation that eventually, you know, from a disagreement, you can build on a synthesis and an, an agreement on a broad policy. Uh, and I think we need that in order to really confront the climate crisis that we have. Yeah, thank you for those concluding words in the statement and as well for the conversation. Well, the climate crisis is not just about carbon emission. It is a systematic socioeconomic and environmental crisis. And I learned a lot about how a transformation of the transport sector can be both sustainable and just. And because it's clear that change is needed. So thank you very much, Bruno, for the interview today and the insights in your work. Thank you, Nora, for the invitation. It's been a pleasure. And I hope we can repeat this soon and then we'll continue having these conversations uh, in every possible space. That sounds like a great idea. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Bruno and Nora, for the insights into Just Transition and the work of the International Transport Workers Federation. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, thanks for tuning in and hear you next time.